Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Good morning, good morning. Today is Thursday, the 20th of January, 2022, and welcome to the Bloomberg Intelligence Emerging Market Lens and Look Through Podcast. I am your ever-endearing host, Damian Sassauer. And today, we are joined by Dr. Winthin, uh, Senior Vice President and Global Head of Market Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. Win, a real privilege to have you here. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you, Damian. It's, it's always a pleasure to come on Bloomberg. Fantastic, sir. Well, listen, you know, let's crack right into it. I mean, rising interest rate expectations are the story of the day. And what it's done, at least over the better part of the past month, is it's taken that pool of negative yielding debt within the Bloomberg Barclays Global Ag down by nearly 35%. I'm talking $4 trillion worth of negative yielding debt now actually has a positive yield. Go figure. So anyway, approximately 13.5% of the uh, of the index itself is negative still. And to make matters even more challenging for emerging market practitioners, real policy rates are now negative in 18 of the 20 major emerging markets. So my question to you, what is the role of emerging market debt in a world of low and negative yields? And do you see this continuation of aggressive policy tightening by emerging market central banks continuing over the covering months? Well, sure. I mean, that's, uh, you know, obviously a very, very important question for global markets, not just EM. Uh, what I'd like to point out is you know, negative yielding global debt is mostly concentrated in the developed world, uh, mostly Europe and Japan, as a result of unprecedented quantitative easing. Obviously, the Fed uh, QE has also added to this global, massive pool of global liquidity. Uh, we know that QE is meant to push uh, interest rates down, especially at the long end. And we know that that in turn pushes money out into riskier assets. And of course, EM is amongst the riskiest and it's been a big beneficiary. So during this period of unprecedented quantitative easing, EM has, has been a huge beneficiary. And now we're seeing the, the exact reverse. We're seeing the Fed tapering, the ECB will taper in April. We had the Bank of England hiking and tapering, more developed market uh, central banks hiking. So we're having this, this massive reversal. And we're talking about quantitative tightening now, QT. And so as a result, I think emerging markets will, will really have a, quite a rocky uh, 2022, especially in the first half when all these measures are coming into play. Um, does that mean EM uh, is, is uh, a goner? No, uh, it does mean that there's gonna be a lot of portfolio rebalancing, especially in the fixed, down, fixed income uh, arena. Um, and eventually EM will get some traction. As you pointed out, Damon, uh, the emerging markets has been uh, actually been front running the developed markets. They've been hiking rates aggressively throughout uh, 2021 and into 2022. That, however, has not yet given uh, you know, much traction to EM. And again, it's because you know, I think of these massive portfolio rebalancing. So eventually, um, between higher um, policy rates in EM, inflation should be turning lower in EM. We should get some positive real rates in emerging markets um, that will eventually uh, increase some demand um, for, for EM rates um, products. But uh, for now, I think it's gonna be very, very rocky. Yeah, no, I mean, we don't disagree with you. I mean, we see, you know, the first half being quite a challenge for EM, but yeah, I mean, hopefully we do see inflation begin to roll over in the second half. And 
hopefully we do see some offshore creditors begin to take advantage of the uh, positive real yields at that point in time and, 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 and the carry benefits of investing abroad. So, so we completely agree. But I, I, think, I think one of the things that's really changed for emerging markets, at least from a sales perspective, is you know, when you know, most people used to kind of pitch emerging markets as this diversifier for you know, global investment portfolios, right? And this has been a key selling point to investors worldwide, and yet this has changed significantly in recent years, right? EM credit spreads and local bond yields have grown ever increasingly more tightly correlated to those of developed market peers, most notably those here in the US. So my question for you is, do you expect this relationship between emerging and developed markets to, per to persist as a more hawkish Fed begins to spread its wings here? Yeah, David, I'm gonna date myself a little bit by, by going back to the 1980s. Uh, when I first started in the, in the markets. And you know, back then, EM really was truly was a diversification play. The business cycles between EM and DM were really not as, as tightly linked as they are now. And of course, what we saw in the, in the 90s and beyond is this greater reliance on, on globalization for EM. Uh, we had opening up of, of uh, capital markets, uh, greater uh, international trade. And so the business cycles in EM and DM became much more correlated uh, and as, as well, the assets as well. So um, I expect this to continue. I mean, I think, you know, the, the globalization is sort of like, the, you know, the tide. You know, we had a lot of people complaining about globalization, but it's like, uh, you know, railing against the tide. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It's not really much you can do about it. Yeah. Um, now, that said, uh, what we've been seeing, uh, with, uh, especially in our clients, is that in, in order to get some true diversification, we've seen more and more uh, investment into the frontier markets, which are less correlated. Um, you know, I see that especially in the equity market, MSCI frontier a correlation with, M with the S&P 500 is, is about half of what it is for MSCI EM. Interesting. So, yeah, and, you know, obviously you get higher yields, but of course, you know, people leave out the fact that, you know, that's, we're talking about higher risk as well. Liquidity in those, in the frontier markets is, is uh, you know, low at, in the best of times. So it's much riskier, but, you know, we're seeing, you know, people go, go out the credit curve, uh, um, especially in this in low interest rate uh, um, environment that we're seeing here in developed markets. Well, you know, I mean, one area when that has obviously added a level of diversification into portfolios is China, right? But as we all know, China's facing a slew of challenges uh, as we begin 2022. But let's be clear, there's no questioning the economy's remarkable evolution over the better part of the past three decades. I mean, indeed, China GDP has already overtaken that of the EU and many expect the nation's economic output to double over the next 15 years. But my question for you is what are your thoughts on Beijing's crackdown on big tech and, and off the back of that, the wave of property sector defaults and, and, Ch and China's pursuit of common prosperity. I mean, in an environment where many large investors remain on the sidelines amid concerns regarding transparency in China and the rule of law, how do you suggest offshore investors approach China? Well, Damon, as you point out, I mean, China is, is such an incredible success story. I mean, you know, just over the last two or three decades, how far it's come in terms of development, the speed and depth of its development is, is astounding. But at the same time, it, it's it's showing that it's seeing that it, it's it's subject to the same laws of economics and gravity that the, that the rest of the world is. So, what does that mean? Well, uh, income inequality has worsened in China. If you look at all the the, uh, the uh, things, the Gini coefficients, the Lorenz curves, um, you know, it's it's come at a cost, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, President Xi is is pushing this sort of so-called. Uh, a common prosperity, right? He's seeing these big tech giants, these big billionaires, um, you know, conspicuously um, uh, being enriched while, you know, sort of the gap with the poor grows. So look, 
we know that Mr. Xi is positioning himself to be one of the uh, sort of revolutionaries along the, the, the lines of, of Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong. Uh, and so he's been pushing uh, crackdown on the property sector, on the tech sector, uh, structural forms, uh, inequality. And that's all well and good when the economy is booming at uh, seven, eight, nine percent. <laughs> but uh, all of a sudden, the bottom is drawing out, dropping out. So I think I'd, I'd note is that I don't think markets are prepared for the sharp slowdown uh, that we see uh, potential for in China. We know that the Sinovac vaccine is not effective against the variant. Uh, they're going for the zero COVID um, policy, which basically means, you know, with vaccines not effective, they're shutting down. So um, look, look, it's to make a long story short, when all said and done, when the economy starts to slow, all, the, all these reforms go out the window and they start pumping up the economy again through, through monetary stimulus. We're already seeing that. Um, so, you know, I think China can avoid a hard landing, but I, I think, uh, I fear that markets are a little bit too sanguine about the China risks right now. Yeah, well, certainly on the credit side, I mean, but you know, what's interesting is, and, and Dirk Willer at Citigroup, you know, has mentioned this before, he calls CGBs the JGBs for millennials, right? Uh, you know, sort of, there is some reserve value there, or maybe not today, but there will be, I think. And, and so uh, I'm talking about the yuan, obviously. And then, you know, look, the fact that China is indeed um, easing uh, monetary policy, you know, one would hope that perhaps that will create a bit of a bid for for uh, China local currency debt. And so, you know, that is something that we're looking at closely, but my goodness, it has had quite a run. So as with most things, they eventually do come to an end. So, uh, you know, um, I no, guess- no, One be- thing, uh, Damon, I think the one thing I point out is that China is such a big part of all the indices, right? Whether it's the, the equity or the fixed income yeah. indices, you know, it's, you almost have to be exposed. Um, but, you know, it, it's certainly not, I don't think it's the no brainer that it has been for the, you know, the last couple of years. Yeah, no, 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 I agree completely. I mean, well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> On the flip side of that, I mean, how can we talk about emerging markets and not talk about what's going on in Turkey, right? I mean, we know inflation's running hot at nearly 40% year over year. Um, Erdogan's push for policy easing despite rising inflation has, uh, has resulted in 500 bips of rate cups since September. Um, so my question for you is, what are your thoughts on Turkey's current situation? And for our audience, let me be clear. Dr. Thin was one of the first to realize that the debt load that Argentina had taken on was going to be just backbreaking. And, you know, I remember listening to you speak back in 2018, 2019, when Macri was still in power. And, you know, you, you kind of made the call. And, you know, my question for you is here is, you know, do you feel that something similar in Turkey is brewing? Do you feel that perhaps a run on the lira is possible? And quite frankly, what comes next for Turkish creditors? Yeah. So, Damon, uh, last time you and I chatted, I remember I think both of us agreed that we, you know, we're getting a little tired of talking about Turkey. So I'm going to keep my answer brief. Okay. <laughs> uh, look, I'll just first of all, thanks for the kudos. But you know, it's look, you know, I've been in this market long enough to know, you know, that you know these EM crises just come and go. But this is, I think, the fifth or sixth sort of lira crisis I've seen uh, uh, in Turkey. You know, I thought he had kind of turned the corner back in 2004, 2005 when they first embarked on you know more orthodox policy. Under, uh, under, of all people, President Erdogan. But he's completely done a 180. He's going down the unorthodox route. And I'll just say without a doubt that without a monetary policy anchor, which we do not have right now, right. Uh, that the lira will continue to weaken and default risk in particular will rise. Now, why do I say that? Well, uh, I'm talking about look, um, the foreign currency. Because look, if, if you're a domestic Turkish uh, entity corporate and you've issued dollar debt and your receipts are in lira, um, it's becoming near, you know, a further free fall. It's become nearly impossible to service external debt. So, look, I'm not saying uh, default is uh, is uh, is a certainty, but I think as an as a foreign investor, you you have to be aware that this model is unsustainable. Um, you know, capital controls are possible, 
Uh, price controls are certainly, uh, I would say, even likely given this, this, uh, this policy stance. But you know, I, again, I, I have little confidence, um, in, I think, in Turkish policymakers right now uh, to do what's necessary. And even a 20, 30 percent percentage point hike may not do the trick at this point. I, I think investor confidence is quite low. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, 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 I completely agree. And I won't push any longer because I com I'm completely in, in, in your camp on that one. It's going to be very, very difficult for a lot yeah. of these local corporates yeah. who have issued dollars or have borrowed in dollars to, uh, to, to meet their payments unless we have a major, major change. So, um, so we'll leave it at that. Let's well, just, David, I'll, yeah. I'll say the one difference, though, it, it, you know, in the past, you know, five or six crises, I always felt like, OK, when push came to shove, the policymakers in Turkey would sort of do the right thing, eventually hike rates, tighten fiscal policy. Um, you know, in the past, I used to go to IMF. I, I no longer have that confidence. I guess that's what's making me so nervous. Like, there's just been such a change in the, in the, in the mentality of the policymakers um, that I, I no longer have that confidence. I mean, policymakers, what we're talking about is President Erdogan himself. He is the only policymaker that matters, yes, I yes. think, which is the real scary part. But and, be, and he used to be orthodox. I mean, he was the one that first, you know, had a big IMF program back in 2004 or five. Yeah. You know, stabilized uh, um, uh, sentiment, got foreign investment. And he knows how it works, but I, I, I'm really flummoxed by how, how much he's changed. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, well, I mean, look, with that in mind, I mean, maybe we should shift our focus sure. a little bit further over to Russia, right? Because I mean, look, as we can rightly point out, that's been another hot spot for emerging market investors of late. I mean, tensions are boiling between Russia and the rest with regard to the Ukraine. I mean, for my question, I, I guess my question for you is, I mean, are foreign creditors sufficiently compensated for the accompanying political risk in Russia? I mean, what are your thoughts on what's going on there, on the Donbass, on, you know, I mean, people are even talking about the potential for Russia to formally an annex parts of the Donbass without having to uh, even, you know, set foot inside the country, right? So, you know, what are your thoughts there? I mean, and what do you think, um, what, what can the West do, I guess, to sort of offset some of the obvious risks that, that Russia presents to it. Yeah, so Damon, you, I'm sure you're aware about, you know, all the investor surveys of 2022, you know, sort of the, what are the potential risks out there? And geopolitical conflict in, uh, you know, in sort of Eastern Europe, Russia was, I think it was typically like number three on the list. Yeah. Um, you know, behind COVID and, and you know, a Fed mistake. Um, and it's coming true. Look, you know, all the reports recently show that there's, there's further uh, massing of troops uh, at the border, you know, and it's clear that the Western intelligence agencies uh, are, are afraid of some sort of imminent um, uh, action. So that's why they've been beating the drama about and threatening, you know, serious sanctions, repercussions of any sort of uh, aggression there. Uh, I, I don't know what Mr. Putin's end game is. I mean, if you look, if you take away the politics, the Russian fundamentals are actually pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, current account, trade surplus, all in positive, way big ter positive territory, due mostly to high oil prices, you know, solid growth. Um, and, you know, this, and given this nice kind of domestic backdrop, uh, Mr. Putin is, is just rattling the sabers. And I don't see, to me, the, 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 I guess the potential gain. I see more potential losses from, uh, you know, incursion in the Ukraine than, than the potential sort of benefit on the domestic uh, international stage. That said, uh, you know, who's to say uh, Mr. Putin is, is acting rationally right now? Um, you know, so my, my, I, I lean towards a lot of saber rattling, you know, trying to get some concessions, maybe prevent, you know, sanctions on Nord Stream. Um, but, you know, of course, it's going to keep markets, um, you know, very, very uh, nervous. I'd say I point out that the ruble is the worst EM performer you to date. And it's all about the politics. Yeah. 
No, no, I mean, absolutely. And look, I mean, I don't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, if, 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 if all the saber rattling means anything, right? I mean, in fact, you see the military movements that, 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 that Russia is moving a lot of their, their forces out from the West, they're moving them back East. I mean, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a scary time, certainly. And, and look, if sanctions do indeed take place, I mean, where, you know, dollar investors aren't able to even buy local currency government debt out of Russia, things can get, you know, things can get pretty hairy in the, <laughs> pretty quickly. So, um, so look, I mean, as we talk about these idiosyncrasies, we're talking about Turkey, about Russia, about China. For me, you can't look at emerging markets without looking at the political calendar. And after a relatively benign year win, I mean, the EM election calendar is poised to pick up considerably. And we're going to see leadership changes in places, you know, from South Korea to Colombia, Philippines, Brazil, among others. I mean, this populist trend, the one that's currently overtaking Latin America, we, t- we look at Chile, we look at Peru. Do we see this spreading to other regions? And certainly, you know, for me, some of the things we're seeing in South Korea with the People's Party or in the Philippines, you know, um, with uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. and some of the other candidates, you know, do we see uh, investors position? How, how do you suggest investors position? I guess I'm in the politics of the moment. Yeah, Damon, that's, that's a fantastic question and, and hard to ignore given what we've seen over the past year or two in, in Latin America. Um, you know, to me, you know, the biggest shock was, was the, the complete leftward lurch in Chile. I mean, Chile was the really leader in sort of free market, Chicago school uh, market reforms within EM, not just Latin America, but really within EM. Yeah. And to see that sort of turn on his head was, was, was eye-opening. Um, <laughs> Is it spreading? Well, at this point, I, I feel like at this point, it seems quite localized to, to Latin America in terms of the real serious policy changes. So obviously we've had Argentina, Chile, Peru, and Venezuela in that camp. Uh, Colombia and Brazil, I think, are, are, could join that camp. Um, you know, Petro in Colombia and, and Lula in Brazil are, are, are uh, I think, the front runners right now. Um, Colombia is another, would I think be the biggest surprise. Right now, I think the, uh, another Lula presidency doesn't hold the same kind of fear that the first one did. You know, I agree. You know, yeah. When all said and done, Ludo was actually quite pragmatic uh, during his, his uh, first two terms. So um, you know, I think Marcus can digest that. But you know, the, to me, the Latin America uh, shift is, is, is really one of the most uh, the biggest shocks that in, in my investment lifetime. Um, we see that elsewhere. Well, we're seeing some populism, obviously, in Eastern Europe. Uh, that's growing. Um, Asia, I think less so. I mean, you, you certainly have some pockets, but you know, for the most part, I think this sort of you know, it's, and part of it is maybe is because there's such a single party rule in a lot of these countries. You know, you know, it, we talk about democracy, but you know, in, for for in all intents and purposes, many of these countries really do have still you know a single party dominating, uh, and it's hard to see uh, you know many of the it's sort of these, these countries shift too far left. Uh, you know, I may be a little bit naive, but you know, I, I do think that this is is is, is in a sense uh, localized to Latin America, and and let's uh, let's see how things develop. Yeah, no, I mean, look, you, you, you make a great point. I mean, of, of the countries we listed, I mean, certainly it feels like Brazil has been trading on the potential for a leadership change for the better part of the last year, but certainly Colombia is the one that stands out to me. I mean, the fact that we could see anti-establishment leftist Gustavo Petro, you know, who's a, basically a former mem- member of, of, of the military guerrilla revolutionary group M19, ascend to the presidency. I mean, you know, obviously many people have made comparisons to Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro. So, Certainly, um, certainly a concern there. But um, but look, you know, shifting gears here, you know, I really love. I mean, you know, for our audience once again, um, um, Dr. Pin's real focus is on the FX side, and one area that we've spent an awful lot of time um, looking at is EM rates, albeit on a currency hedge basis, right? I mean, historically, EM currencies have had an outsized impact 
on EM local rates performance, so much so that EM rates on an FX hedge basis actually have served as a useful as served as a useful complement to U.S. Treasuries. I mean, it's got a very similar risk return profile. Um, it's provided ballast to diversified investment portfolios over the better part of the last call it decade. So, you know, now that we're seeing that, you know, the Fed is embarking on a tightening cycle, U.S. Treasuries are coming off. EM rates on an FX hedge basis are obviously following that. But going forward, do you see this? kind of sub-asset class gaining favor with large institutions, with sophisticated investors? And do you see it perhaps evolving to be a true alternative for global investors in need of ballast within a broader portfolio? Uh, yes, I, I think, Damon, I think you're, you're correct, correct the points that you make. Uh, you know, I think we've already seen growing interest uh, in this uh, asset class. Uh, obviously, there's going to be ebbs and flows, right? I mean, the, you know, the, the, carry, the carry trade, you know, as we know, you know, comes and goes, right? We have uh, you know, it, the carry trade, for instance, you know, tends to thrive in a weak, thrive in a weak dollar, uh, low volatility you know, environment. And, you know, we're not seeing that right now. So, you know, I think the carry trade, for instance, will, will have trouble, um, you know, in 2022, at least for the first half. Uh, again, as for the reasons we spoke about earlier in this in podcast, you know, maybe we get some traction once local rates move higher. Sort of in, you know, the markets become kind of comfortable with the Fed tightening path. You know, I do think that the markets are still underestimating uh, the Fed's capacity to tighten. It's, it's sort of moving my way, but we're still got a ways to go. Um, so I do think there's still a lot of, you know, sort of potential, uh, you know, monkey wrenches for, for, for local rates investment. But uh, actually, you know, we're, you know, talking about diversity, uh, you know, emerging markets, you know, you know I, I, I tend to come across as sort of the, uh, you know, sort of the glass half um, empty, uh, you know, when I talk about EM a lot, but, you know, stepping back from where EM was when I first started in this in, you know, business, you know, 30 years ago, uh, it's come such a long way, and and I you know I, I tend to look at the short term because I'm an FX guy, but when you look at the broad picture, FX and asset classes come so far, and not in terms not only in terms of uh, equities but also local currencies, dollar bonds, etc. And that will only continue. Um, you know, as as the corporate governance improves in EM, as as macro policies improve, uh, all all these you know social indicators, uh, EM has has a really bright future. And, and I, I I do tend to think I, I focus a little bit too much on the negative. Uh, over the short term and, and kind of lose sight of the sort of how, how well EM is done. Um, so yeah, absolutely, uh, you know, we just have fits and starts, but, um, you know, EM uh, as, as part of, of global investor portfolios is, is, uh, is only, I think, only going to go higher. Well, I mean, when that takes me to my next question, right, as the, um, as the asset class continues to evolve, I mean, the investor base has changed dramatically since, you know, forget about 30 years ago, let's just call it five years ago, right? I mean, we've got passive ETFs now that are dominating flows across borders. I mean, there's just so many changes that are taking place as we speak. And my, my question for you is, when you kind of look at large cross-border capital flows, you know, who are the major risk takers investing across the current EM landscape? And how do you see the composition of emerging market investors changing in the months and years ahead? Sure. Um, you know, I think over, you know, sort of you know, my lifetime, um, you know, I think, the, you know, sort of the initial you know, um, investors in EM were, 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 you know, much more uh, risk takers, right? They're, they're more aggressive, which is whether it's the hedge funds, hedge funds or, or, or um, you know, real money investors that had a higher risk profile were the first in into emerging markets and rightfully so. But as those markets have matured, you know, we've seen obviously much more retail interests. We've seen pensions and endowments here in the U.S. and other countries go, you know, increase their EM weight. So as EM has matured, 
has, has become more acceptable. We're seeing, you know, sort of that, we've no doubt seen that investor base widen. Is, it, has there, is there more to widen? Well, at this point, it seems like all, you know, all the major players are there. You know, we've talked about the mutual fund that's, that it reflects retail. Uh, we've talked about pension funds, endowments, uh, you know, hedge funds. I mean, I don't see any, you know, you know, any sort of more players going in. What I see is sort of a deepening of, of this investment, you know, sort of uh, a widening of the uh, investment footprint in EM. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, at this point, uh, you know, really everyone has already dipped their toes in EM. That's, that gives you an idea of just how far EM has come over these years, right? The fact that we have pension funds, you know, typically the most uh, risk averse uh, investor, um, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the investment climate to, to go into EM. That's, that's something right there. Um, so, you know, let's see how things pan out. Uh, I would just point out that, you know, in, um, you know, in general, you know, even despite all this, um, all these players coming into EM, I think in general, EM is, you know, people are still in underinvested in EM. If you look at, uh, for instance, in equities, look at, you know, EM market cap to total global cap, or you look at uh, EM as a share of global GDP. You know, I think EM is, is under, is still underrepresented uh, and still has some room to go there. Um, but, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, you know, we'll see, you know, sort of these kind of flows come and go. You know, we have some Johnny come lately's that, that uh, you know, as you know, are, are not unaware, are sometimes unaware of the risks. Um, but, you know, I think the more savvy investors are, are you know, in for the long haul and, and, and much more, you know, willing to take on these risks over long term. Well, I mean, look, it's getting a bit late here. And before I lose you, when I just have to ask you this question, I mean, obviously, the coronavirus continues to send shockwaves through global financial markets. You know, I'm curious from, from your, you know, you know what, what vulnerabilities were exposed due to the pandemic that most surprised you? I mean, what really took you by surprise? And it's not an EM specific question. It's more, you know, looking back over the last 18 months, you know, what really, what really shocked you? What, what didn't you see coming? What didn't you expect? And what have you learned from, uh, from the pandemic? Well, boy, I, I, we could go on for hours. On this. <laughs> yeah, I, would say, I know it's a loaded question. Yeah, I know. But Damon, I, to me, the biggest surprise, look, look, I think we all knew that the, the poor countries are going to suffer the most. And that, that's still playing out right now, right? In terms of vaccine rollout, uh, you know, sure. uh, vulnerabilities. And, and that's unfortunate. Um, to me, the biggest surprise, and this will be on the upside um, in a sense that, you know, is how resilient EM has, has uh, investment in EM has, has remained. I mean, for, so when for the pandemic hit, uh, I, I look back, MSCI EM fell, uh, you know, about 35% in Q1 2020. Right. And that's like, you know, if you look at, it sounds like a lot, but you pull back further and look at how it's come. It's since that sort of uh, trough in, in March of 2020, MSCI EM has surged uh, almost 90% mm. uh, over the next year to peak in, in February 2021. So now it's kind of gone sideways since then. But, you know, to me, it's, 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 it's incredible how, how well EM investment is, has, has hung in there. Uh, look, obviously, part of it's due to the sort of unprecedented, you know, global liquidity injections globally, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the fact is that investors had, had confidence in EM to sort of, to, uh, sort of ride this out and to, to get their economies back on track. And so to me, that's a pleasant surprise. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Wynn, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and views with us here today. And thank you to our audience of ever enduring, always committed EM enthusiasts for your time and your continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. Thank you so much. 